90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, well, I'm really good. I'm back at home for the week, uh, taking a break while our students are out on their regional field trip, visiting a lot of our great national parks in the West. Oh, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, we did some shows last summer when you were on your trip out there. It's just gorgeous. Oh, exactly. Um, Yellowstone is one of the main places that they're going. So it's America's first national park. And also, this is the Park Service's centennial year, um, August 25th, 2016. They'll celebrate uh, the National Park Service's 100th birthday. And I think we're going to talk a lot more about this summer because as everyone who listens knows, I'm really obsessed with <laughs> America's public lands and our national parks. And so I can't wait to talk about that and see how everyone did. I'm sure we'll have lots of stories uh, next week when everyone gets back from their regional excitement. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I've actually just been reading a lot of the feedback that we got because we got a decent amount of feedback after last week's show. Awesome. Um <laughs> And I, I will say, I think we should start with the um, the worst offender, which is me in this case. Um, <laughs> so I don't speak Dutch, and um, I did the, the thing you shouldn't do, which is click on the first link to figure out how to pronounce something, because it led me astray. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> listener Bart corrected us, and I'm not even going to try to say that Dutch word for warm winds. And um, I think Bart made a recording for us, so we're going to play that mispronunciation on my part and the correct pronunciation on his part. Phone. All right, so thanks for that correction. It's been a while since we had an audio comment. It's always nice when people send those in. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, we got more than that, though, this week. Yeah. So we actually also heard from Martin, and he said in South Africa that they get what are called berg winds. And I'll put a link to this in the show notes, but basically these are winds that blow off the, uh, the interior plateau, uh, southern Africa. And anyway, there are these hot, dry, you know, couple days, which generally come before rain because these are also associated with uh, incoming cold fronts. These downslope winds are so cool. And I love that there's always sort of a colloquial aspect to them. And I think, well, I, we should write a book about it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a bestseller. I, I, no, no doubts. Because <laughs> you don't yeah. have to, not, we won't do the audio book, though. Obviously, we'll have someone else do that for us. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's not even it. We still have one more from Steve, right? We heard from listener Steve, who turns out to actually be not incredibly far from me. Uh, he listens to us and the Orbital Mechanics, and he said that he has a physics problem for us. Well, I love this. This sounds like a puzzler. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it does sound very Car Talk-esque. Uh, he said it's from this book written about 100 years ago. Uh, an Introduction to the Use of Generalized Coordinates in Mechanics and Physics by Byerly. And in this book, there's this problem that says, Two alpine climbers are roped together. One slips over a precipice, dragging the other after him. Find their motion while falling. That's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he said that a lot of people find word problems boring and frustrating and that uh, this could help with that. Uh, I absolutely agree. Um, <laughs> it's pretty cool because uh, thermodynamics is sort of the, well, at least it used to be back 
when I took undergraduate stuff and it was the weed out class. And I remember when I took it, we had the coolest word problems and they were stuff like you fire a gun on an airplane. And then we had to figure out all this sort of atmospheric stuff about what happens in the cabin. And it was really cool. Like you wanted to hate this class because it was so hard. But I think interesting (laughs) word problems really help out a lot. Yeah, when I took uh, atmospheric dynamics two, we had all kinds of problems. I remember one was calculate calculating the uh, Coriolis deflection of a chicken wing bone that Guy Fury choked up. <laughs> Gross and hilarious. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so all kinds of good stuff. Oh, and there was one that was all about uh, Farmville. Oh. The, the Facebook game that was popular then. You had to calculate uh, there was differential heating and all kinds of vorticity, and it was it was quite the word problem. Uh, but he, he did send the answer, actually, in a, in a second email. Oh, and oh, wonderful. you can find this book online. Uh, it's apparently it was a 40s reprint that is kind of hard to get a hold of. But the answer is, their center of gravity describes a parabola. The rope rotates with uniform angular velocity about their moving center of gravity. So if you think about this, you know, it's like two balls of different weight tied together and you toss them and they're going to revolve around each other in some kind of eccentric fashion, but the center of mass will just trace the parabola that one would trace if you threw it. Right. Right. Yeah. So that was a really fun problem. Uh, He did say that that's the only fun problem in the book and he (laughs) bets that Byerly never wrote a fun paper either. (laughs) I do think that that is all the feedback that we had though, but thanks for that folks. That was a, a really great batch of feedback this week. And that was a lot of feedback this week. Uh, what else have you been doing, John, besides reading emails? <laughs> <laughs> we know a lot of the normal, but I've also been uh, writing some for, I actually am the multi-rotor columnist for Servo Magazine now. <laughs> I really hope you push your glasses up on your nose while you're saying that. <laughs> uh, a little bit. Uh, <laughs> you know, but I'd written some other things for magazines in the same family, and they found out that I did some things with drones and quad rotors and they said, well, we've been looking for somebody to write a column on this. Are you interested? And so like any good overcommitted person, I said, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I've been, you know, we've got a lot of articles already kind of scheduled ahead, but I've been looking for some new things to do. And I think aerial photography is going to be pretty high on my list. Yeah. So aerial photographs, I mean, they have a really long tradition in the geosciences because that's how a lot of field mapping I I would say was done, but I think is still done. And, you know, now maybe we look at DEMs a little bit more, but as little as 10 years ago, we'd get the two uh, photographs out, get our stereoscopes out, and we got this 3D image, and then that's how the USGS would make topo maps and still does is off of these aerial photographs. Yeah, I mean, when you need really fine resolution and to be able to get down into little crevices, uh, there's nothing that beats a stereo photograph. Uh, Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And, I, you know, I was going to make an aerial photographs show, but then I realized that that would be a couple of normal length shows. <laughs> I'm sure it's, I'm sure it'll be in the queue for not a summer short. So um, what did you decide to uh, whittle it down to then that we're going to talk about today? One aerial photograph. <laughs> like your favorite aerial photograph or? A, a, a very special aerial photograph, an aerial uh- photograph that was taken on May 28th, 1906. So that sort of lends itself to 1906 and in geology parlance, San Francisco earthquake. That's what we're talking about, right? That's what we're talking about, but that's not where we're going to start. Oh, okay. All right. Well, hit me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So we're actually going to start in 1868. That's so 
way pre San Francisco earthquake. <laughs> right. And in Illinois in February, there was a boy named George Lawrence that was born. Okay. And you know, he did the normal school thing and all that. And when he was 22, he moved to Chicago and actually got a job at the Abbott Buggy Company factory. Excellent, excellent. But not long after moving there and starting to work for the company, he quickly showed that he was very ingenious in coming up with ways to do things and building things because he actually came up with a really good way to affix iron rims to the wooden carriage wheels that the company adopted and made them very successful. That sounds like a big deal, but what does this have to do with aerial photography? <laughs> oh, we're, we're still getting there. <laughs> and the next one, maybe will get us a step closer, that about a year later, after doing that, like any you know, in, ingenious person that uh, has solved one problem, he said, well, I think I'm going to open a portrait studio. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so he opened a portrait studio, and then he started playing with and perfecting different techniques, including flash photography, you know, like with the, the powder in the thing and... Uh, and not flashbulb photography. This is the mid to late 1800s. Right. Yeah. So, the stuff you got to sit still for for like 20 minutes, right? Stuff like that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but with his flash, maybe you didn't have to sit still, sit still for very long. Great. But then, so in 1900, so once again, not too much after that, uh, he showed off a lot of engineering ability again when he built the world's largest camera. Oh, Awesome. Um, I have no idea what to even think about how big this would be in 1900. There are pictures of it. Okay. So this camera used a glass negative that was four and a half feet by eight feet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's ridiculous and ridiculously expensive, I bet. Oh, I'm sure. But it was made to photograph the Alton Limited locomotive. So, you know, a very big subject and he wanted a very large plate to do this. Gotcha. And the photo won what I think it has to be the best prize name ever at the Paris <laughs> Exposition. Grand prize of the world. That is the name of the prize that the photograph won. <laughs> That's absolutely awesome. Yep. Right. So, okay, now we're in, you know, 1900, now a little bit after because he's and won the grand prize of the world. <laughs> You'd think you would retire after that. <laughs> right. So we'll fast forward a little bit now to April 18th, 1906. Okay. All right. So it's 5.12 in the morning. Yeah. And as you said, there's an earthquake. Right. And this was a doozy, right? It started a massive fire. Lots of people were killed. And uh, it was pretty big, right? Estimated at a 7.8 magnitude. Yes, yeah, so it's 7.8, which is, is pretty good size. But really, like you mentioned, it was the fires that really got to things. Right. They burned for days and days. Um, and I know that in the press, you know, they wanted people to come out to California. And so no one talked about the fact that there was an earthquake that was responsible for a lot of this. And the fires are the famous thing from 1906 because we didn't want to mess up the tourism and the um, population boom that was going on out west to scare people by saying there's really big earthquakes out here too. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, there was over 3000 people killed by the time this was done. And most of the city was just completely gone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how did we do a survey of this? And this is where we get back to, um, one of these, what I'm guessing is your famous aerial photo we're going to talk about. Yes. So now finally we get to May 28th. So it's six weeks after the earthquake. 
And there is this this guy, George Lawrence, that who we, we met back in 1868, mm-hmm. that is out there tying together all of these kites <laughs> in this large array to be able to lift a camera that weighs 49 pounds. Oh, this is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so funny to think about today and doing that. <laughs> well, I mean, kite photography, I, when I was researching this story a little bit, I actually found out that kite photography is a really active hobby. Like now. Now it is. Now. Oh, but of, okay. But of course now, you know, you have relatively small digital cameras yeah. and you can have stabilized platforms a lot easier. You can have a small kite, but, you know, there were no regulations and he was doing this. So there was certainly no weight restriction or altitude restriction yeah. as there are now. And not uh, a but, lot of, not a lot of airplanes flying around then either. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, so kite photography still is a thing and there are some really beautiful photographs when I was looking this up and some pretty active web forums too. Ah, that's really cool. Um, I will say that this photograph by George Lawrence is unbelievable, and we have a link in here um, to it. Yeah, no, this photograph is amazing. So the USGS had a very high-resolution scan done, and it's this interactive web app where you see the whole thing, and you're like, oh, well, I can't really tell much, but you can zoom in and see the like sub-building level detail. Yeah, it's like it's. It's like a gigapan from 1906. It's really <laughs> yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. You got a 49-pound camera. It better do something good, I guess. <laughs> yes, yeah, so this this is a 160-degree panorama. So it's a good chunk of the peninsula. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually made prints and sold them for $125 each. Which, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. And so then he sold about $15,000 worth of those prints in 1906. And today, that's way more than $15,000. It's almost half a million bucks, right? Yeah, it's about 400K. So (laughs) he made a lot of money off this photograph. And it's very famous. Uh, But I actually really like this next bit because it turns out he wasn't the first to take an aerial photograph. This is just one that I really like. Uh, yeah, so meteorology wins again, right? 1887? 1887 was the first known aerial photograph, and it was by a meteorologist, closely followed in 1886 by a French meteorologist that did another one. Uh, were these kite photographs too? These were kite photographs. Awesome. That's great. And were these just um, amateurs doing this for you know weather research? Not amateurs, but doing this for weather research purposes? Is this... I, I actually couldn't find hardly any detail about oh. them other than it happened. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. But I'm assuming based on these dates that, you know, I said amateurs, but I'm guessing that some government stuff started to happen after this and we started to use those for military purposes? Yeah. So like any good technology, it's picked up by the Department of Defense. Yep. <laughs> uh, and this was, uh, aerial photography was extensively used in both world wars, uh, not only from airplanes, especially in the second, uh, but actually kites and balloons were also used out on the front lines quite a bit. That's unbelievable. And I mean, we're still basically doing the same thing today, but with drones. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I mean, it, it's kind of neat to think about how accessible this is with things like structure for motion and all of these cool mapping things that you can do now with consumer-grade $400 things. Uh, it really opens up all kinds of fun things. But sometimes you want to go back and redo it the way it was. <laughs> I really hope that you've got a kite that you're working on right now. 
I, I don't. I have a couple of kites, but I don't think any of them are big enough for this. Oh, okay. uh, but so it turns out this photo has been duplicated a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Once on the 100th anniversary of the earthquake, and they actually got Lawrence's great-grandson oh. uh, to, to hit the shutter button. Awesome. <laughs> That's uh, really but neat. They, so they built a replica of the camera that he used. Oh. And, and then they took it up in a helicopter. So uh, it wasn't from yeah. a kite, but it was from the same type of camera. That's really cool. Uh, but then there were some USGS employees, and I actually know a couple of these folks, uh, that did it again from a kite with modern cameras. But they mm-hmm. weren't light cameras, you know, like a Nikon D70 and a Hasselblad X-Pan. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not uh, 49 pounds, but... Not 49 pounds, but possibly 49 kilodollars. No. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, so some really nice equipment. And they went out on a boat. And they tried to do this. I put some links into the website where they talk about doing this. Uh, Scott Hafner did uh, actual photograph. He's got a really nice website with beautiful galleries of things that he's done. And well, and they also have some about how they figured out where the photo was taken from and how they were going to do theirs. Uh, you know, they took the photo and put it and geo-referenced it with some Esri software and uh, kind of some really neat nerdy stuff. And... Uh, <laughs> Then, uh, you know, one of the folks, I think he must have a boat because on the website he's listed as Skipper, but I know him as a as an earthquake person, went out and they said, well, you know, they calculated that I believe that it was uh, 2,000 feet at the altitude at which this photo was taken. Uh, that's really awesome. Um, that's really it's a lot neat. of kite string. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even get a 100-foot kite string to work, so um, I'm going to have to work on some skills before I take this into account. Um, <laughs> it's so crazy to think about where we've come, because it's like I've seen a lot of these tiny little drones are for sale at gas stations and stuff now. And <laughs> yeah. that stuff's just everywhere. It's cool to think about, you know, a kite, a ton of kites with a 49-pound camera hanging off of it. <laughs> Well, and like you said, the photograph is beautiful and detailed. And unfortunately, when they reproduced it, they couldn't go to the 2,000 feet because, you know, there are two international airports around there now. You mentioned airplanes earlier. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, a little bit more problems. (laughs) (laughs) So they had to take it from a much lower altitude, about 300 to 350 feet. But they still still got a really nice photo. Oh, yeah, it's still really cool. And to look at this original one, I mean, you can see people on the docks. This is just, it really is like a gigapan from 1906. It's really cool. I mean, you know, there, there aren't pixels on film. Yeah. On cellulose. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, well, in an effort to keep this to an actual summer short, <laughs> I think we should go on to everyone's favorite segment of the show. Yay! Fun Paper Friday. And <laughs> uh, this is actually a listener fun paper. Oh, excellent. I wondered where you had stumbled across this, but that makes more sense now. <laughs> Yes, so this is from listener Hannah, and it is called The Impact of Meat and Lore Paleolithic Food Processing Techniques on Chewing in Humans. (laughs) All right. Um. You know, I I think if you wanted to simplify the title, it could be Paleo Diet Caused Us to Have Small Jaws. Yes, yes. I think that is Zink and Lieberman could have written that. And that would have been it. And I really thought you picked this because I know you're a big meat eater fan. And so I thought maybe you'd had a bad run in with a vegan or something. And (laughs) you found this. This is all about different ways to prepare meat. This was actually super interesting because I feel like we kind of 
are like, okay, so we learned how to cook and that's what happened. But that's really not what this paper says at all. Um, and it goes back to trying to figure out what, when did we start eating meat and how did that affect how our faces look now? Yeah. And how did that affect how much room we had for, you know, the stuff between your ears? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Which was an even cooler link that I am definitely following up on. Um, but this is really cool because it said, you know, we started to increase our meat consumption about 2.6 million years ago. And we had tools about 3.3 million years ago, but we didn't get fire and cooking until about half a million years ago. And so where in that did we start consuming meat and what did we do to the meat and that was actually the part that was really cool yeah and you know it turns out that raw meat is really hard to chew and it takes <laughs> an immense amount of force and i'm not talking about if you go and you know buy raw meat at walmart because it's it's still processed right yes because it doesn't actual have off bristle. the animal raw meat <laughs> right yeah because that includes all the skin and you know muscle stuff that we're not eating and everything like that um this is actually really cool because they did a lot of stuff looking at unprocessed. We used goat meat in this um, in this example for this paper because that most is probably the meat that's commonly available that most replicates what we as early hominins would have been eating. Yeah, and they also looked at uh, what they call underground storage organs, which were things like carrots. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's the weirdest name for root vegetables i've ever heard yeah uh. <laughs> uh underground storage organs and that's what they refer to carrots beets stuff like that throughout this whole paper right <laughs> and you know they say well so before we got cooking uh, we started to process our food mechanically by doing things like hitting it with rocks to tenderize it <laughs> or yeah. cutting it up with pieces of rocks uh, to get smaller smaller pieces to chew or to slice off the skin and cartilage and rinds and all that kind of thing. So geology, once again, exactly. to the rescue. <laughs> that was how I was going to introduce this, was that this is a geology paper, but not for the reasons you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and interesting enough, the tenderizing didn't really change a lot of sort of the force per sample on the meat it was really the slicing is what did it the most it i mean more so than cooking almost you know it reduced it the applied force per sample as you can see here in a table that talks about it the meat versus those underground storage organisms um the slice slicing of the meat getting rid of all the the hide and all that and then making the meat thinner is actually what sort of helped the most in terms of getting us to chew more mechanically effectively. Yeah, and it also turns out to make the nutrients more accessible when you're digesting. Yeah. So it's actually better, made it better for you to eat the meat. And, you know, there's a lot of details in this paper that I don't know that we really want to go into, but uh, I'd, I'd really like to talk about the experimental methods. I knew you would. I knew that was going to be your favorite part of this paper. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, you know, they get uh, some volunteers... And they have them, in this case, chew pieces of meat that are either raw, like just from the goat, but were tested uh, to make sure they don't get any foodborne illness, uh, or that were pounded with a rock, like they, they took a big piece <laughs> of meat and hit it with a rock, um, or sliced up with a rock, or you know all these different methods that they talked about, and then finally cooked, uh, along with some of the underground storage organs as well. 
And so there are pictures of this in the paper, these masticated chunks of beets and goat meat. Yes, so they they chewed it up and spit it out. Yep. Uh, (laughs) Gross. (laughs) But I was wondering how they knew the force that it took to you know, break this up. I, I really like that they were talking about like the fracture energy of a piece of meat. Right. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> how do you measure the, the chewing force? And it's fascinating. Uh, yeah. So this is a really cool name too, right? Surface electromyography electrodes. <laughs> I, I think so. EMG. Okay. <laughs> yep. That's how we'll and say. <laughs> so th- they recorded the, they put a, a, an electrode uh, on your left temporal area, and then one on a hand, a ground electrode there, and they would record the uh, the voltage from the muscle activity. And then after you did the experiment, they put a load cell in your mouth and had you bite on it a bunch of times with different amounts of force, and they recorded that as well. And from that data, they could calibrate the voltage they recorded from the EMG to the bite force you were exerting at the time and get a time series at a kilohertz of the bite force involved with you chewing. That's pretty awesome. That's really cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it makes you think of those little bite wings that you have to do at the dentist and um, how much cooler that could be if you could just record that like this instead. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's it's like, well, I have some adhesive copper tape. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and some raw goat lying around totally unrelated (laughs) (laughs) seems like something that would be interesting i I know bill hurd i'll actually link this in uh bill hurd on hackaday had this neat little video where he made a uh, a project to measure muscle activity by the electrical impulses so i'm wondering if you could do something like that and try to do this you know on the on the maker front yeah oh no kidding uh this was a super interesting use of you know, geology and mechanics and also anthropology as well. Um, This is a really neat paper. Yeah, absolutely. The the only knock against it is that uh, the calculations were performed in Microsoft Excel 2007. Uh, Uh, Ouch. But still cool anyway. Oh, yes. No, it's it's a really great paper. (laughs) And uh, thanks to listener Hannah for sending this in. Yes. So if you have any kind of fun paper you would like us to talk about or any kind of comment or correction that you've got for us, we would love to hear it. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, please keep sending us your audio comments. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And as always, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin, and John is at geo underscore Lehman. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding.